Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Nicolay Wealth Management Podcast. As normal, I am your host, Anthony Wilhelms, and with me is Mike Steppe and Adam Longley. It's been uh, fun last month or so in markets, Adam. Can you tell us what's going well and why we're up so much recently? Yeah, November has been a great month for for returns. You've got the S&P 500, the biggest 500 publicly traded companies, up 9%. In, in one month. Um, that's the second best November in, in um, over 40 years. So very strong returns. And then you had the bond market also had a, a nice um, positive return as well. Uh, investment grade bonds were up 4%. If you think about bonds, you know, the expected return um, is just the annualized yield to maturity. So let's call it five or 6%. So the expected monthly return on bonds is a twelfth of that. So call it a half a percent. So November, to put in context, uh, the return in November was eight times kind of normal for the bond market. So think about a 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. You made 7% in, in 30 days. So very strong. The, the best November in 30 years for 60-40. Um, you know, why, why did that happen? I, I think a lot of it is because um, interest rates fell and interest rates fell because it was, there's, there's a lot of things you could point to that says the, the Fed's probably done raising rates, whether it's inflation coming down, um, consumer spending is slowing down, the labor market is starting to cool, but it's all coming down um, gradually and, and, um, and kind of um, in a way that is, is manageable. But I think you just had a really, positive um, backdrop and everything is moving in a direction that would suggest uh, what what a, a soft landing would kind of look like. Well, I like starting off with good news from you, Adam. We'll see if Mike can keep it going as he broadens out the last couple of weeks in financial markets for us. Adam, rate came down. When you look at uh, like two-year treasuries, they came down about 25 basis points and five-year to 10-year treasuries came down 35 to 40 basis points. And so we've just had a good month. Um, to, the yield curve is still inversely uh, you know, inverted. And so you've got this situation where two-year yields are 35 to 40 basis points higher than 10-year yields. But most of that is sort of between the two-year and the five-year. So the uh, yield on 10-year treasuries is a little higher than five-year. So there's a positive slope there. So all of this is meaning that uh, people are watching what's going to happen in 2024 really closely because they're thinking that rates are going to come down. The interest rate differential between U.S. and German is in Germany is running about just under 2%. So that continues to remain positive. So there's money flowing into the US to buy bonds. The dollar is weakened with the uh, with slower economic activity in the US, but that's to be expected. And we, we're still doing relatively well with the dollar. So oil is trading. Uh, at just over $75 a barrel. So we have a, a good set of fundamental factors to look at, and it's been a positive month. So, Mike, I'm going to stick with you on a question related to maybe inflation returns and the Fed. And later on, I'll ask you to tell us what the Fed will do for the next year. 
<laughs> exactly, but, right? <laughs> as Adam mentions, equities up or S&P up uh, 9% in November. You mentioned bonds up 4%. And that product or the cause of that related to the Fed cutting or stalling rate increases. If the Fed is seeing that, gosh, just saying that rates aren't going to go up, this is the type of stimulative effect it has on the economy. How practical is it to expect that rates could get cut? And uh, if or would this trend persist? When the, the, the old saying in the market is that when the Fed raises rates, they do it in sort of a stair step process. And when they cut rates, it's an elevator going down. So um, there's some truth to that when you look back historically. And so you want to look at that and say, uh, you know, here's the situation. The, the Fed is likely done with pushing rates up. And the market has already started to price in these rate cuts. Right now, as of this morning, when we're taping this, the, the market's pricing in two rate cuts in the first half of the year and two rate cuts in the second half of the year next year for 2024. Now, a week ago, it was only one in the first half of the year and two in the second half of the year. So that's increased. And you're seeing, you know, sort of that market sort of adjusting and pricing that into the market. My own suspicion is I don't think we'll see the Fed move that aggressively down, but that's that the market's thinking that they will. And so it'll be an interesting run in here when you look at that. It seems like it will. It will. Just quickly, with your point related to typically it's an elevator down, I like the analogy of the stairs in the elevator. It, that's Is that because typically when rates are cut, the economy is less healthy than this? And so it's really a recovery mechanism or a, a support rather than maybe normalization or something to that effect now? Absolutely. I mean, the Fed usually overdoes it. And so they overdo it, pushing rates up, and then they go, oh, my, uh, we got to act to get this back down. And so they do come down um, fast. I like it. Well, my, Adam, that might be some uh, context for you when we talk about the S&P or equities more broadly. Uh, we look at the S&P having a strong finish, and uh, if we finish somewhere around 4,500 for 2023, what does that look like into 2024 for large U.S. equities? Yeah, can I start by saying it's it's very, very hard to predict where the market's going to be in 12 months. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, that's the beauty of recording, Adam, because now we can hold you to exactly right. what you say. <laughs> right. So, Because, I mean, think about it. Even if you knew for certain where inflation is going to be, interest rates, consumer spending, employment, even if you knew where all that stuff was going to end, all the big variables, you still don't know how people are going to behave and, and what they're going to pay for the market, right? Because all people... You know, they don't behave rationally all the time. And so that's the big that's the big thing you don't know is, is where is the multiple going to be? Uh, what are people going to pay for those earnings? Just as an example, think about a year ago. I think it was eight out of nine forecasters were predicting we'd be in a recession. Right? That didn't happen. The average forecast called for the S&P 500 to decline. Uh, you know, the average um, forecaster was saying we're going to have negative returns this year, and here we are up 19. Um, and so it's it's obviously difficult when i look out next year we have a we have a couple of thoughts um you know starting with what what other forecasters are looking at um most are predicting returns are going to be positive in 2024 the range of um forecasts for the most part are between flat and up 10 which is kind of normal it's it's often what you see 
you know, our best guess is that earnings um, next year grow by maybe 5%. That's probably half of what the market is expecting today. Uh, we think the market valuation multiple best guess kind of stays the same where we're at. And then investors um, can expect to collect 1% or 2% in dividends. So think about a total return for the S&P 500 of around maybe 6 or 7% positive. Maybe a little bit better than, than the bond market. So that's kind of what we're thinking and how we're positioned. I like it. I like the summary. And I always enjoy how forecasts converge to a mean of zero to 10%. What a safe wide lane to <laughs> for the market consensus to be. Uh, we'll move to a uh, less uh, easily explained thing in related to energy or oil more specifically in my experience when global conflict increases so whether that's making supply chains more difficult or the threat of war increasing demand for oil we see energy prices spike that hasn't been the case what's what's going on yeah we've got oil um in the u.s around 70 internationally around 80 look at the futures curve it's pretty flat slight backwardization backwardization that means that um you know expectations that prices are maybe going to be a little bit lower in the future but pretty flat the the price of oil is really established by simply supply and demand um and, and what you've seen is prices this year year to date are kind of flat year over year uh, down a little bit so you know to the question why not higher with with inflation how it is you got two wars going on opec is consistently cutting production brazil just joined opec those all feel like we should have higher oil prices and we don't so i think if you go back to supply and demand um in this case right now it's, it's mostly of a, a supply issue so supply has been exceeding demand for the last two months as a result you've seen inventories build for the last six weeks that puts a lot of pressure on prices specifically what we've seen is a uh, every day inventories grow by 300,000 barrels expectation is that they would draw down 700k so there's about a million dollar a million barrel per day difference in, in what we expected or swing so where in demand's pretty good so where where's that supply coming from uh, a lot of it is the u.s and then the rest is coming out of Russia and, and Iraq. Um, I'll leave it there. But they're producing more than we thought they would. Um, that puts pressure on prices. And so you've seen, you know, gasoline at the pump for consumers. It peaked in September and it's gone down every day for the last 60 consecutive days. And I think that's helped. Uh, it's been a nice tailwind for consumer spending and, and the market overall. So to that point, um, I, I can imagine by your comment, I'll leave it there that you wanted it to stop there. But now I'm curious, too. Um, when the U.S. has something changed that caused the U.S. to increase supply? Um, and then is there some relationship between those countries needing more revenue in the current environment that they're upping production independent of, say, OPEC or uh anything else and that obviously somebody is still buying that oil um, regardless or independent of the global conflict. Um, a couple of things. One in the U S we had a period where we uh, drew down the strategic reserves. You know, at some point um, that has to be built back up. You're seeing a little bit of that. You're also seeing it's been an environment where energy companies um, 
have been, um, you know, investing in, in, in growing production. You're kind of seeing it takes a while, but you're seeing that oil hit the market as well. And then, um, you know, these OPEC countries that agree to cuts, it should not be a big surprise that they often cheat um, and don't do what they say they're going to do. And so you see some of that. At the end of the day, a lot of these countries are, you know, you know interested in self-interest. And, and if that means putting more oil in the market for the revenue, then that, that's what they're going to do. Well, and I suppose war does not enhance cooperation across a region. So the likelihood of uh, non-cooperation with some of those things must increase in that environment. Well, it's even this last OPEC meeting, which we just had, you know, it came out that they're going to cut production. Um, you know, it's less than 1% of the market, but they didn't come out and have a formal uh, press conference. So there's, there's a lot of questions on, you know, what, what are the dynamics? Because they all kind of just left and went home. Um, so we'll see. Well, I love that you're uh, paying attention to it and you have the depth of knowledge to be able to continue to provide more perspective. So thank you on that one. Well, Michael, come to you and related to um, currency valuations and changes in the U.S. dollar for 2024. Uh, you mentioned earlier the spread between the U.S. Treasury and the German Bund, and you also mentioned that the I think that the U.S. dollar is softening a little bit, but reasonably strong. What do you see going forward as, especially with the context of that rate with four rate cuts domestically, presumably tightening that yield spread over um, German or global interest rates? Again, I'm talking about trying to predict uh, equity prices, trying to predict the dollar is uh, treacherous at best. Um, what you look at historically when you when you think about the dollar is there's three sort of levers that you watch. First of all, how strong is the U.S. economy relative to other global economies? That's number one. Number two, what are these uh, interest rate differentials? How positive is that? And then three, and this is always the hardest part because it's the wild card, what happens in terms of globally, in terms of geopolitical risk, that means there could be a flight to safety where all of a sudden there's a massive move into the dollar because the dollar is the biggest, strongest, deepest markets. So those are the three things you watch. Recent weakness has been caused by the U.S. economy slowing. We, we see that. Uh, people's perception about that factors in. Also, the interest rate differentials have tightened a bit, so this isn't surprising. I would guess sort of going forward, if we don't have this massive, uh, some type of massive geopolitical risk that creates a significant flight to safety, the dollar is going to move sort of sideways in sort of a choppy pattern over the next year. Because I think when you look at it, all the economies are relatively weak and the interest differentials have become narrower. And that sort of says, man, you're probably going to get a flat environment for a while. That makes sense. Uh, one more question related to that. When you mentioned flight to safety with in increased geopolitical risk, certainly we saw it back when um, Russia invaded Ukraine. And it seems like the that hasn't happened in the most recent conflict with in Israel and around the Middle East, that that flight to safety to the U.S. dollar or to treasuries in general hasn't happened the same way. Do you think it's, and maybe there's a third one, but two that come to mind for me are, is it a, it, the dollar might be less relevant or tre treasuries as the safe haven asset or that the global, uh, like 
assessment of the level of risk over there maybe isn't as great as it seems. I think that what's given the, the currency traders a sense of comfort is at, going back to Adam's point about the price of oil. If the price of oil had really gone up and people had really anticipated this was going to be a problem, I think there would have been a bigger currency market reaction to that. I think the currency traders are looking at that and said, how bad could the situation be if oil prices haven't gone up? And so I think that's played at least some part in this. Well, now I'm going to even stretch your mind further into the future of forecasting rates and everything else with looking at 2025 and beyond for treasuries as you as we see maybe some normalization or stability through 2024. What do you see beyond that period? Just just a few more years back on. <laughs> um, sure, the, the rate outlook is one where I, I do think it's sort of easier to see a longer run vision than than to predict very short term movements because in 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 the long run it's sort of a weighing mechanism. In the short run, there's a lot of emotion that sort of goes into it. To me, if if you step back from all this as a as a bond person and you're looking at interest rates, the two key things you look at first of all is inflation. And second of all is supply of debt. And it's sort of like when Adam was talking before, it's supply and demand with oil. It's supply and demand with interest rates. And inflation sort of sets a bar. And all of us want to invest money and have a real return and, and increase the purchasing power of the funds that we're investing. So if you think about inflation as maybe around two and a half percent, the Fed's target is clearly two, but it's a situation where the inflation's been sticky, wages, the near shoring where people are bringing their supply chains closer to home, less uh, China trade. So I think those things continue. That's going to put some upward pressure above 2%. So I'm sort of thinking in the back of my mind, 2.5% for inflation. I think there's going to be more supply that's going to play a factor. Treasury supply is going to increase. Right now, the, the Treasury is increasing the size of the bill auctions and not, in, not increasing as much the longer maturity issues. So I think over time, they're going to have to do more longer maturity issues. So I think that'll add a premium. So maybe that puts sort of rates, 10-year rates around 3.5%. We're right now at 4 and a quarter. A uh, month and a half ago, we were at 5. So if we're going from 5 down to 3.5, about half of that move is already priced into the market based on where rates are today. Rates came down 75 They'll probably come down another 75 over the next year and a half would be my guess. I love it. I always appreciate you giving some perspective on that. And I always appreciate you and Adam as we are crazy. It's coming up to the end of the year recording on December 1st. Uh, I have a couple more fun questions for both of you uh, to round out the this episode. Uh, I'll start off with you, but Mike, I'll ask you in a second, Adam, too. Uh, surprises for next year and then... Uh, some books or magazines that have been interesting. Mike, why don't I kick it off with you of what surprises might we get to see in 2024? I guess surprise will be that rates will, will be kind of sticky coming down. So I think so much of what's happening in all the financial markets is keyed off what's happening with interest rates. 
And I think that's going to surprise the market sort of pricing a lot of movement down. And I don't think they'll get that. It'll be sort of disappointing to the market in that regard. Uh, in terms of the, the fun stuff to read right now, I, I go back. Um, there's a book out there by Charles Ellis, um, How to Win the Loser's Game, about investing. I've always found that to be a really good book for people to read. I would say the when you're trying to track the markets, I go. I really like Barron's and I really like The Economist. So if you're looking for gift ideas, a subscription to either of those is a is a good gift to give people sort of a little more investment insight as to what they're looking at. I love it. Adam, any big surprises that you see as potential for 2024? Um, big surprises. I, th I think there's going to be some dislocations, um, where there's companies that are under pressure of, of higher interest rates. I think those that have liquidity and can take advantage of those opportunities. Um, I think there's some really exciting stuff that, that could happen next year as far as an opportunity set, things that we haven't necessarily participated in a big way in the past so i'm, I'm excited about that you know if, if, if we're talking gifts or, or, or books um I, there's a there's two books out there it's a series i think is really interesting it's red notice and the second one is freezing order um it's essentially i won't give it away but you've, you've got a essentially a hedge fund that got involved in russia and it's just a it's a true story and it's it's just wild um and it's extremely timely it just did not happen um it's happened relatively recently so um it's a good read nice well i'm always looking for one and i i had a feeling with that bookshelf behind you that i see you must have had some good ones <laughs> in there well uh and to our audience appreciate you joining us all year this has been a lot of fun to put together we appreciate you um if there's ever anything you want us to cover please feel free to reach out to me i always like it or to adam or to mike or anybody else at nicolay uh, with that mike and adam i'll turn it over to you for any parting thoughts mike you start off i think the key thing is to stay invested and we keep we see all this volatility all these changes in the market and the people and the investors who stay invested and make good decisions at the margin do really well. Adam, parting thoughts from you. Yeah, you, you've probably seen something called the Santa Claus rally in, in the press. And, and so I've gotten questions about what is that? Um, you, know, you know, over my lifetime, December has been the best month in terms of stock market gains. If you look at a simple batting average or winning percentage, ask yourself, did the market go up or down? Uh, December win rate is 72% of the time. That makes it the best month. We get the rest of the months on average, it's only 62% of the time. So December, what happens is it usually starts fast. You get a lot of economic data. Um, this, this month in particular, this December, we're going to have a Fed meeting on the 13th. Uh, expectations that our rates are unchanged. Then you also have a lot of uh, public traded companies. They have analyst days, outlook events. This is when company management tells institutional investors how great the next 12 months is going to be. That, that tends to be well received. Um, I've attended either in person or virtually at least a hundred of these. I've never seen a negative outlook. Um, I have seen companies cancel the event or, or just skip bad years, but these are always positive. It's always a tailwind for stocks. And then at the end of the year, the last two weeks, you, you, you tend to see the market drift a little bit lower as, as everyone's on vacation and there's not a lot of news, but that's the Santa Claus rally and, um, and, and we'll see what this year brings. I like it. 
Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Adam. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. 